those of you that don't know me, my name is Jeff Francona, and I'm an elder here at the TAB. Um, and I am also a new member to uh, the preaching team. So being part of the preaching team, we go through various trainings. Um, there's like little classes, there's a book you have to read. So the last one we did was actually given by our own Christine Skull and Stephanie Hill. And it was called Hermeneutics and Exegesis. So no, you don't know, have to know what those mean, but during that, I found an opportunity to kind of pick the brains of two people that are very gifted teachers. So one of the things I asked was, how do you get the passage that you're preaching on out of your head? So we got our assignment for 1 Samuel back in February, and we got our, uh, the uh, passage we're preaching on shortly thereafter. So for months now, I've been seeing everything through the eyes of 1 Samuel 15, which you'll soon find out if you're not familiar with, is not the brightest of chapters. There's a lot going on, it's pretty, it's pretty depressing. So I'm looking at everything through that. I decided after that class, that it would be, that would be it. I'm done, I have everything together, I have my Frankenstein of notes, as Christine calls it, and I was gonna be done. So fast forward a couple weeks from there, it, uh, both of my daughters, their birthdays are in the beginning of May. So we asked them, what do you wanna do for your birthday? And they both said they wanna go shopping. So anyone that knows me knows I do not like shopping. Uh, I don't even like shopping for myself. Um, so we're going to go shopping. That's what they want to do. So we picked a Friday. And after I got off work, we're going to go shopping. So I figured it's going to be the same thing. Um, we're going to go to Forever 21, which, by the way, is like the worst store on planet Earth. Okay? And we're going to spend a couple hours in there. And then we'll go out to a nice dinner. And it won't be that bad. So I'm preparing myself for this. As anyone that knows me, I'm very routine. So I'm preparing myself for this. And as I'm preparing, they throw a curveball at me. And they say, we want to go to the Ross Park Mall to go to this store called Sephora. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this store. I had not. This store, I thought Forever 21 was the worst store on earth until I went in Sephora. <laughs> this store is terrible. It's filled with all kinds of makeup and smells and powders. Everything looks like the same color if you're ever in there. It's like 50 shades of brown, but they all look brown. Now, granted, I am partially colorblind, but it's still even for that they all look like the same color. So in this trip, we, uh, I, went, I left the store, walked around the mall a couple times. They still weren't done. I sat on the couch outside of it. I'd like to say like I prepared for this or read my Bible. I surfed the internet for about an hour and then they were done. So we go out to dinner and it was an, a great evening. So on the way home, my, both of my daughters lately are obsessed with this band called ABBA. Or uh, what is it, ABBA? ABBA. I don't know what you're called. But anyway, so they want to listen to ABBA on the way home. So we're driving home, and they put on this song. Well, as they put on the song, all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, this makes sense to 1 Samuel 15. And I thought, no way, I'm going to be going crazy, right? Like an ABBA song and this. So I tried to ignore it, blocked it out. I said, I'm already done with all of this. So we get home, have a nice evening, rest of the evening. I wake up the next morning. And as I'm spending some time with the Lord, I can't get this song out of my head. And I'm like, wow, let me play it. So I played it on my, my Apple Music, and I'm looking at the lyrics, and I'm like, wow, I think this does kind of make sense. So I want to bring you guys into kind of my headspace on this. So I want to play a little clip of the song. And if you can, follow along to the words. 
of the song. So if you see some of those lyrics, it's the love you gave me, nothing else can save me. And when you're gone, though I try, how can I carry on? This song is telling you that you need love, to be loved by someone in order to, for your existence, in order to save you, right? But we could put that with anything. We could put that with money. We could put that with power, personal recognition, any of those things. That's what the culture today teaches you you need to be happy, right? And it was no different in Saul's day. We learned earlier in this series that Samuel's sons were wicked, so the, the people, the Israelites, wanted a king. And the words they said is they wanted a king like the nations. It's just like today. They wanted a king like the culture that they were in, like the nations, and like, the, like us, the people of God, we are letting the culture influence us as opposed to us influencing the culture. So we are also walking and saying that we need these things in order to be happy. So let's summarize now. We'll get back to chapters uh, 13 and 14 before we get into 15. Um, so in 13 and 14, a key theme is a contrast between fear and faith. You know, um, Saul is going to lose the kingdom because he acts in unbelief while fear drove his actions. So his actions are disobedient. Jonathan is the opposite. Faith directs him. Um, he will go over in faith while, while Saul is staying behind in fear. Steve preached on this, I think it was last week. And a comment he made was, Saul is passive in fear and Jonathan is proactive in faith. We even see at the end of the last chapter... That Saul gives his people, his army men, the command not to eat any food until the battle is won. Um, he actually says um, that he ha until I have avenged myself on my enemies. I mean, what a like what a dumb oath, right? You're in war. This isn't like war today. These people are walking far, and food's hard to come by because you gotta you gotta slaughter an animal and cook it. It's not like you can go to the convenience store. So he's telling them, don't eat. So obviously, and it says his men were in distress. So that's where we are. And at the end of chapter 14, he, you know, he the the author summarizes the victories of Saul and his family. And the impression we are left with in many ways is that Saul was a successful king. He inflicted punishment on Israel's enemies. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites. Those who plundered God's people were now defeated by God's king. And he confronted the Philistines in bitter war. And yet we read in chapter 15 
that God is going to reject Saul. So if you can, if you could turn with me in your Bible or device, yes, device, Michael, um, to chapter 15, um, buckle up, we're going we're gonna to go through a lot of scriptures, um, but I am going to jump around a little bit in this passage so as to not to include the entire passage. So 1 Samuel 15, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen, which means obey, to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Jump to verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. If you could jump now to verse 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on mission in which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted to the, the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So, <laughs> now you're in my head a little bit of what I've been thinking about for the past three months. Um, so in chapter 15, Samuel brings a message to Saul from God. God will punish the Amalekites for their mistreatment of the Israelites when they first escaped from Egypt. If you're not familiar with the story, this kind of originated in Exodus 17. So in Exodus 17, we get this picture of Joshua going to fight Amalek while um, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the hill. And when Moses would lift his hands up, Joshua would be, would be prevailing in the battle. But when Moses would drop his hands, Joshua would start losing and Amalek would prevail. 
So Aaron and her put a stone under Moses to, so that he could rest on, and they each held his hands up until the sun went down, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek. So God rescued the Israelites back in Exodus, but he never forgot the Amalekites' treachery. This was even prophesied in Deuteronomy 25, um, where God pro well, they prophesy that you shall blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. You shall not forget. This prophecy was almost 500 years before this event. And for your information, when God says blot out the memory, the Amalekites do not exist today. So this is a war of conquest, or uh, this is not a war of conquest, it's a war of justice. The goal of the attack was not to make Saul rich, but to execute justice on a rebellious group of people. Saul was explicitly told to take no prisoners and leave the wealth alone. Back in that day, the, the cattle, the sheep, and the oxen would have been considered wealth. That's, that, was a, um, that was wealth to a person. The command is now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, I've got to venture off for one second, and I want to address this verse. Um, this is a disturbing concept for modern minds, right? Why in the world did God order something so brutal? It's impossible here for me to give the full treatment to the question of Old Testament warfare. Um, entire volumes have been filled, and more will be, addressing questions about God's justice and war. We here at the tab would encourage you, if you have questions, to ask one of the leaders um, or do some reading and uh, research on it yourselves. So anyway, Saul, Saul duly defeats the Amalekites. And so when Samuel comes at to him after the battle, Saul says, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. It looks as if Saul was truly obedient, right? But in fact, Saul's obedience is not for real, for real. How do we know? This is one of my favorite verses in all scripture. Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Do you see how ridiculous Saul's claim is? How absurd. The evidence of his disobedience is literally all around him making noises and smelling like livestock. Um, so he's like, Saul's answering with an air of like, approval and, and um, that he's like, he's like, yeah, that's right. I'm faithfully following the Lord. And how easily can we fall into this? We carry ourselves like we're faithfully following the Lord, but the evidence of our dis disobedience is all around us at times. And this gets us to our, my main point for um, the sermon today. The main point is partial obedience is really only disobedience made to look acceptable. So Saul begins with what I call the three excuses. Excuse number one, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep, the oxen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Excuse number two, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on mission to which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction. And excuse number three, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. So all three of these excuses have some or all of the following components I'm going to go through to kind of put it in today terms. It was the sensible thing to do, right? To keep all those cattle, sheep, oxen, like 
There wasn't a McDonald's around the corner. Like they need food. These are, it's considered wealth. You don't have a fridge to put stuff in. Like it's the sensible thing to do. And we do that in our lives, right? Um, Let's say you have a, a bigger family and you need a big vehicle, but in order to afford that vehicle, you can't give what you usually give to the church. It sounds like the sensible thing to do to get the vehicle that's the size that your family can fit in, right? Or what about this one? Has anyone ever been invited by a friend to do something and you don't want to go? So what's a sensible thing to do? Oh, I'm busy, right? Even if you're not, or I don't feel well, right? I know like everyone in here has probably done it, but we won't admit. But everyone's probably done it. And our reasoning behind us is it's the sensible thing to do. We don't want that person to, to feel bad. So when Christian invites me to do something, I always tell him I'm busy because I don't want him to feel bad. Sorry, Christian. So the next thing is everyone else does it. So we can get caught in that, right? Everyone around us is gossiping. Everyone around us is partying. Everyone around us is doing that so I can do it. Or you might say, like, everyone around me is doing that, but I'm not doing it as badly as Michael, right? We can all do that stuff. The next one is they did it for God. Like he said, I did this for God. I I was listening to a podcast a while ago, and the preacher on it told a story of someone in his congregation that told him that he put a pool in his backyard, and the only reason he did is because they can have baptisms there now for the church. And the pastor was like, listen, you're allowed to have a pool. God is not up there saying, no, you can't have a pool. You have to make the excuse, I'm using it for God, right? Um, And the last one in it is people-pleasing. This is one I can relate to. You know, with people-pleasing, you always want people to get along. You don't have boundaries. It's hard for you to say no to anything. You know, I, I think of examples where someone comes up to you and is like, hey, did you ever see this movie? And maybe you haven't seen it, but you'll answer, yeah, I have. Especially if you're in a group of people, because you don't want to feel embarrassed. No, I haven't, ha- I haven't seen it. Or, hey, you know, come to the gospel tab. You know how to get there. You got to pass, you know, the, the whatever the, um, you got to go through Aliquippa. Do you know where that is? And you say, yeah, meanwhile, you don't have a clue. You just want get, to get along with the person and continue the conversation. Or like me, maybe you don't want to stop them because you don't, you don't want to have them explain it to you. All right? <laughs> So really, again, it brings us to our main point. Partial obedience is really only disobedience made to look acceptable. So Saul's disobedience offers us a crash course. Those of us who are religious, works-based, a doer like me, are often tempted to cover over rebellion with rituals to substitute ceremony for surrender. We disobey in one area and try to make it up to God with some offering in another area. So my God before I came to faith was work. Man, when I got out of college and I got into banking, that was all I could, could desire. I, would, I just wanted the next promotion, the next place, the next higher level. And when I came to faith, that didn't immediately go away. I just switched that to Christian working, which is often deemed good. So I wanted to memorize the most Bible verses. I wanted to answer the questions in Bible study. I was doing anything I could around the church. And it was all for my glory, not God's. 
And I did this. This is all ceremony until I realized Jesus' call is to surrender, not to ceremony. Religion tries to pay off God, but religious people labor under the delusion that they have the right to retain control of their lives. Religion wants to obey God on its own terms, terms that mean partial, delayed, or conditional obedience. But all of those are just various forms of disobedience. So being a doer, you know, I, I read a book once that it was profound to me, and he talks about that when we are doers with Jesus, we need to be with Jesus more than we do for him. And our doing will flow out of the being. So in Mark 3, 14, Jesus calls his apostles, and he calls them to be with him before he sends them out. And then most are familiar with the Mary and Martha, where Mary is sitting and being with Jesus, and Martha is running around doing. So everyone has a king, something he craves and must have to feel happy and secure. Remember in the Abba song, the love you gave me, nothing else can save me. And when you're gone, though I try, how can I carry on? So Saul's personal recognition is Saul's king. It fuels his rebellions, his rebellion, his disobedience. It's why he built a monument to himself. It's why he spares Agag. He didn't spare Agag to be like nice and merciful, right? He spared him because the king is the ultimate trophy. His pride, his personal recognition, look what I have, look what I got. It's a better trophy than having killed the king. Sin always grows out of some deep dissatisfaction, something we feel like we must have for a happy and secure life. There's a Saint, uh, a Saint Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce it, quote, um, that I really love. It says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So with this disobedience, it's such bad news, right? How do we overcome this? We can only overcome disobedience by the gospel. Saul, Samuel reminds Saul that God made him a king when he had previously been a nobody. I mean, we, we see in, verse, in chapters prior that, that when they're going to proclaim Saul as king, he says he's hiding with the baggage. Like you got this tall, gangly guy that at one point is hiding with the baggage, and now he's doing all this stuff to puff himself up and to get personal recognition. So this story, when Saul, when Saul was made king, is a beautiful picture of the Old Testament uh, picture of the gospel. Saul should have res responded in gratitude because of God's amazing grace. He should have allowed the value of God's gift in him to break the captivating power of sin over his life. But he hardened himself against God, God's grace. And God has said something similar to us, too. It says in Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to that. While we were still sinners, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ. He does that. It's while we were still sinners is when he died. The God of the universe sacrificed himself in the ultimate call of obedience to us. Philippians 2.8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I won't get into it here, but the cross is a humiliating death. It was, it was reserved for the worst of the worst, the low of the low, meant to embarrass you as you carried it to the place that you were going to go on it. And then there's Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
It is Christ who promises mercy to us all the days of our lives. When we understand this, it liberates us from the driving need to be great. And man, did I want to be great? The next promotion, the leadership position when I became a Christian or answering the questions in Bible study. Um, Saul also has a driving need to be great. And trying to be great in his own power is the main point of this whole message has to happen. Partial obedience is really only disobedience made to look, accept, be, to look acceptable. And we are just like Saul. So the great news of the gospel, though, is that Christ fulfilled obedience perfectly for us, but then was given rejection and punishment at the end of his life. He did in our place suffering the penalty for sin. He died a sinner's death so that we could have a saint's acceptance. To obey is better than sacrifice. The author of Hebrews alludes to 1 Samuel 15, 22, applying it to Jesus. He obeyed fully and then sacrificed himself on top of that, Hebrews 10. His obedience earns our acceptance before God. The one person whose opinion matters more than any other, if we will receive it. And when we do, the power of disobedience in our lives is broken, setting us free from anxieties, dissatisfaction, insecurity, and fear. We can live from acceptance instead of for acceptance. And just like Saul, we can put on many faces to please the people around us. You know, I could say, like, back before I knew Christ, there were times I would power myself up in front of people so they would think I was more than I actually was. They would think better of me. Because I cared so much of what they thought. I, like Saul, desired personal recognition. There's an odd line at the end of chapter 14. And it says, And when Saul saw any strong man or valiant man, he attached him to himself. Like Saul, we can also power up by surrounding ourselves with what you call like the cool people. Right? That's what Saul was doing. He was grabbing any of that. I just know that when you do this, you're tired. It's hard to put on a different face for different people all the time and not know if they like you for who you are rather than the person you are projecting you to be. And Jesus calls us. He says, come to me, all who are heavy laden and weary, and I will give you rest. So Saul is such a picture of a gifted person that, made, that had so much success, but with really distorted heart desires. Saul wanted the crown, but not the cross. So as we coming in to kind of land the plane here, I always want to say land the plane, but we're not quite landing yet. Grant, we're making like our approach. Okay. So I, I, I'm a T like, I like teaching. I like interaction. So I, I need you to help me out with something for a minute. We're going to play a little game. So I'm going to have Savvy put a picture up and I want you to shout out real quick what you think it is. Go ahead, Savvy. Real quick. Anything? Next picture. How about now? Any ideas? Next picture, Savvy. Are we sure yet? Is there one more? That's it? Okay. So it's a car, right? Pretty terrible looking. This is a Bugatti Type 57. What's the next one? This is a Mercedes-Benz 330 SL. Go to the next one. This is called a Talbot 
Lago, T26 Grand Sport. I've never heard of a Talbot Lago. I don't know if anyone has. And the last one, uh, these are Maserati. This is a Maserati A6G Grand Sport. All of these cars were found in abandoned garages and barns, okay? And in the present condition, they are all rotten and decayed. You know, the brakes don't work, the engine doesn't work, the rubber pieces have rotted, and yet as ruined as they are, these cars are glorious. They're glorious to any car enthusiast because of who made them and what they represent. In fact, did you know that this car that's on the screen, this car right here, it's the Maserati uh, A6 Grand Sport, this exact car sold in this condition. So someone bought a car that's not going to start, it's not going to take them anywhere, and looks like that. Real quick, can anyone have a guess of what they paid for this car? $75,000? Okay. Jim Skull, you ruined it. It's $2.2 million. Yeah. I think Christine told you. $2.2 million for this Maserati. Why would someone do that? Well, maybe they have too much money, but besides that point, why would someone do that? This car is valuable, valuable to anyone who loves cars because of who made it and what it is. And so whether or not it can perform, it's inherently valuable. These cars are what I would call a glorious ruin. They're both glorious because they're a Maserati or Mercedes or a Bugatti and what they represent and who handcrafted them, but they're also ruined to some extent. They're decayed. And this is exactly how God sees you, me, and the world we live in. You see, every person around us is a glorious ruin. And just like a car enthusiast would look at the Maserati and say it's glorious the way it is, but a car enthusiast will love it so much that they will want to restore it back to its original glory. They'll want to restore it to what it was intended to be and what it was intended to do. It's valuable whether or not it performs, even in its ruined state. And this is how God views all of humanity. That every single person of every gender, of every race, of every belief system, of every political party, people with disabilities, infants, babies in their mother's wombs, old people in nursing homes, all people are inherently valuable because they are made in the image of God and he sees glory in every person. But there's a catastrophic divorce, a tear that has happened in the fabric of the universe that ripped us away from God. Satan came into this world and a thing called sin has separated us all from God. We all have this corrosion, this rust, if you will, on us. And God sees both the glory and the ruin in every one of us. And he sees it with the eyes of someone who says, I love them the way they are, but I love them so much that I would love to restore them to what they can fully be. Every one of us has been infected by this sin that has ripped us away from God. Every one of us, if we're honest, have had a moment where we've chosen to turn away from God in some behavior or some action or some thought that has caused death to rule over many. This is, it's this that causes us to try to make our disobedience acceptable. But there's good news. Even greater is God's wonderful grace. What is grace? So 
there are a ton of definitions for grace. So I just want to find like the shortest one that I thought really hits home. So what is grace? It's when you get something you don't deserve. And what we got is Jesus's gift and his gift is righteousness. Jesus's love is not just some ooey gooey emotion. It's a love that was proven in action. And he proved it when he went to the cross. He said, I will reach you. I will reach you to everyone. He paid a lot more than $2.2 million to rescue you in your decayed state because he sees value in you. And now this gift of salvation is not something we earn, but something we receive by faith. And when we do, the righteousness of Jesus, the perfection, the holiness of Jesus is applied to us. And where we were separated from God, we get restored back to God. The, the righteousness is for all who will receive it. And those who receive it will live in triumph and, and victory over two things. You can live in victory over sin. That is those decisions, habits that hurt you and hurt the people around you. Those thought patterns, addictions, those behaviors that are bad for you and the people around you. Through Jesus, you can have triumph over all these things that God calls sin. And through Jesus, you can have victory over death. Meaning that when your body wears out on this earth, you will wake up in the presence of your creator. God starts the restoration process for us in our hearts and soul in this life. And in heaven, scripture actually says, you will have a glorified body. So anyone that's suffering with a disease, an illness, or an ailment, in heaven, you will have a glorified body. And there will be no more pain, no more sickness. And this to a car person is probably a cool idea because the body or the outside of the car, the metal, the hood, and the doors um, are the outside. But when you restore a car, where do you start? You start with the engine and the insides. And the outside is the last thing that you do. And God does the same with us. And all of this is possible through this person, Jesus the Christ. And he had to be fully man and fully, uh, fully man and fully God in order to rescue us. So what does all this mean for you? When we looked at the car pictures, I'm sure a lot of you thought you were looking at junk, except Jim Skull. <laughs> looking at scraps, stuff that should be sent to the junkyard or melted down because it has no value. But a car enthusiast looked at each of those pictures and said those are worth tens of thousands of dollars, or in some cases, in their ruined state, they were worth millions. That Talbot actually sold for 1.9 million. And when God looks at you, it's not that he's not aware of the areas that still need work in your life. But hear this. Those don't define you to him because he sees your potential. More than that, he sees what you could be, what you should be, what he intended for you to be before sin, death, and evil came into this world and into our lives. This means that your failures are never final because you are being restored. It means that your addictions, your problems, the parts of you that aren't where you want them to be at, the parts of you that you're ashamed of, God knows those parts, but he doesn't reject you because of those parts. He is in the process of restoring those parts, the parts that you just think, man, I'm so ruined. There's hope. There's hope because there's a capable restorer. And God is going to keep working on us all of our lives. God's manual, the Bible, keeps us in the repair shop to restore us. The same scriptures that lead us to salvation, they will continue to reshape us and give power to our lives as we follow Christ. John, you can come up and play. I'm actually landing the plane now.
look twice. Um, so as we close here, <clears throat> my girls love this show called Dance Moms. Has anyone seen Dance Moms? Unfortunately, so I have to say, it's a happy scene. So I have to say, like, passing through the living room, I caught it on the television. I may have sat for an episode or two. Um, it's like a train wreck that you can't stop watching. So those of you that don't know it, it's this show about Abby Lee. She has a dance studio that's in, it's actually like outside of Pittsburgh. And what she does is she trains these kids to dance. And so they have these competitions every week. And at the end of the competition, they all come into this studio and do something that has to be horribly damaging to these kids. And they all sit down, they're all nervous wrecks. Their mothers are even more nervous than they are. And they get what's called the pyramid. And the pyramid, they, what the, Abby Lee does is she rates each dancer from the worst to the best, all based on their performance. So as they're sitting there nervous, these kids are like, oh my gosh, am I on the bottom? And then they're on the bottom and she tells them how terrible they are. The moms are devastated. The kids are devastated. Then they go to the, you want to be on the top of the pyramid, but you're not on the top for long because at the very next competition, your performance is all that matters in everything on that show, right? You know who would have wanted to be on the top of that pyramid? Saul. The bad news of Saul is everything is dependent on us and our performance. We like to live that dance mom style of pyramid. It's all about us and our performance. That's bad news. But the good news is that the, uh, this is the opposite of what the gospel is. With Jesus, you are always at the top of the pyramid regardless of your performance. You will be at the top based on what Jesus did. Your salvation depends on Jesus's commitment to you, not your commitment to him. Your salvation does not depend on the quality of your faith or the quality of your obedience or the quality of your commitment to Jesus. It depends completely on Jesus's commitment to you and his commitment is perfect. Do you believe that? Saul didn't. That's why he operated out of disobedience. Tim Keller summarizes the gospel, I think, in a wonderful way. He says, we are far worse than we could ever imagine, and yet we are far more loved than we could ever dream. Charles Spurgeon has a quote that I'm going to end here with, and it says, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. So I would just encourage anyone today, there's going to be prayer ministers up here. If you don't know Jesus and you think you want to, come up to one of us, come grab me, come grab one of the ministers. And if you do, but the Jesus you know is the, is the Jesus you think is like the Abby Miller standing and judging and bringing, ranking everyone on a pyramid. Or I used to always have this picture of God standing there with his arms crossed waiting for me to mess up again. It's that try hard, try hard, fail. But that's not the Jesus of the Bible. So I'd encourage anyone um, to come up if they want to know that Jesus.